sheep and shepherd, right? That's your theme. I am a sheep. The Lord is my shepherd. Um, I suspect every one of the speakers has gone through this mental, um, mental gymnastics of trying to decide where to go with that. Here's what I've decided. You're either getting a, a healthy dose week after week of either the 23rd Psalm or John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd, or nobody's touching those texts because they think everybody else is going to touch those texts. <clears throat> We're going to be in Luke 15. So if you want to turn your Bibles there, go right ahead. Luke chapter 15. God's love for humanity is often described in that terminology, the shepherd and sheep language, such as the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Or John chapter 10, where Jesus in verse 11 and also verse 14 refers to himself as the good shepherd. I thought about going in, uh, in that direction with how, how Jesus is described as being uh, the good shepherd, right? John chapter 10. He's referred to as that great shepherd of the sheep, Hebrews 13, 20. And then Peter refers to him in 1 Peter 5 as the chief shepherd. So I thought about going that direction. Good shepherd, great shepherd, chief shepherd. But then I decided to do Luke 15. So we're going to do Luke 15. You can do those uh, others on your own. Work up your own lesson on those concepts. But that idea is all over the Bible, that God has that relationship with his people as a shepherd has a relationship with his sheep. And in Luke 15, Jesus tells three parables that all basically have the same, uh, the same purpose behind them. The parables of the lost sheep, the lost coin, and the parable of the lost boys. And I, I do like to say that plural because there were two lost boys in the prodigal son parable. The one that ran off uh, and then the elder brother was lost too, just in a different way. Uh, but those parables taught in that chapter uh, were designed to shine a very bright light on the attitudes that were prevalent among the scribes and Pharisees. But they were attitudes that were the exact opposite of God's. God acted like a good shepherd toward His people. Scribes and Pharisees acted just the opposite. They had a very pitiful attitude toward those that were in the greatest need of what Jesus came to offer. And Jesus points that out to them in Luke 15. We're going to focus tonight on that first parable, the parable of the lost sheep, Luke chapter 15. And let's look at uh, verse number 1, actually verses 1 and 2 to begin with. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near him to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Luke describes two groups of people coming to hear Jesus speak. Tax collectors and sinners. Let's talk about tax collectors for just a moment. Your translation may have the word publican. Um, same thing. 
Tax collectors were not looked at very favorably by the general populace. And the reason for that was because of what they did. Not only did they collect taxes, and who likes to be taxed? Nobody enjoys that. But what made it worse for them was that these tax collectors were collecting taxes for the Romans. Now, the Jewish people did not like at all the Roman occupation. Uh, They were under the heavy hand of Rome, and they didn't like that at all. And, you know, Rome was going to collect its taxes, but they employed Jewish men to do that. So the general population looked at these brothers of theirs, these Jewish brothers, as traitors to a large degree because they had simply given in to the Romans and were working for the Romans. And um, uh, and, and that just didn't sit well with them. Add to that the fact that tax collectors were known to take more from the people than what they really were required to take, but the people didn't know the difference because the tax collectors themselves were in charge of that. And if they told you this is what you owe, then that's pretty much what you, you owed and you gave it to them. But they would, they would tell them that they owed more than they actually owed. And so they were just skimming off the top and whatever they could make uh, for themselves, they did. And they were known to do that. And so putting all of those things together, it's not hard to see why the general population would not think too highly of these tax collectors. But many of them were coming to Jesus to hear what he had to say. I find it interesting about the tax collectors, that uh, kind of a side point, but according to R.C. Trench, He says that the Jewish leadership would not accept donations to the poor from the treasuries of the tax collectors. Even if one of these tax collectors wanted to donate to the poor from his gatherings, they wouldn't accept it. That's how much they disliked these tax collectors. Um, Testimony from tax collectors was not admissible in court, in Jewish courts. Because they just didn't think they were trustworthy. So this, this is the kind, these are the kinds of people that are coming to listen to Jesus. Along with them is uh, another group that's simply referred to as sinners. Tax collectors and sinners. A general term uh, obviously could describe anybody guilty of transgressing God's law. Uh, it's interesting to me that, that you have on another occasion in Matthew chapter 21 a reference to tax collectors and another group that's coupled with them in in a very similar context. And those were harlots. Tax collectors and harlots, Matthew chapter 21. Tax collectors and sinners here, probably including some of those social outcasts like that. All right, so get that picture in your mind as we're setting things up, getting the foundation in place. Here are these social outcasts, these sinful people, and these, these tax collectors that everybody hated, they're coming to listen to what Jesus had to say. They were drawing near to Him. Verse 1 says, now a little, a little side point about the, um, uh, the syntax of that, of that sentence. They were drawing near. That, 
that, uh, that verb there that's translated drawing near is, is written in uh, a particular tense of verb in the Greek text that signifies ongoing action in past time. It's called the imperfect tense. So it's action that's ongoing, but that was happening in the past. They were coming to him, right? So you could say they came to him, or you could say they were in the process of coming to him. So it was kind of an ongoing thing. They kept coming to him. And that's going to be important when you see how they respond, how the scribes and Pharisees respond to that in just a moment. So they're drawing near to him, and they're doing it for a noble purpose. Some people approach Jesus with nefarious purposes. And you read that sometimes in the text. They came to Jesus to test him. They came to Jesus to, to ask him a question, to trap him in his words. Well, that wasn't the case here. These people wanted to listen. They wanted to hear what Jesus had to say. So they had a noble purpose. They were in the process of coming to him. And the scribes and Pharisees were repulsed that he was welcoming those people into his company. Now look at verse 2. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble. New American Standard reads. They, they complained. They grumbled. Well, that word translated grumbled or complained is in the same tense that that other verb was in that I talked to you about a moment ago, right? So they were in the process. They were continually coming to him. The scribes and Pharisees were continually grumbling about it. So the picture that we get from just from the language that's used is that the more these tax collectors and sinners came to listen to Jesus, the more it bothered the scribes and Pharisees so much that they just kept grumbling about it and complaining. So picture in your mind Jesus teaching, just, just having conversations with these people about eternal things, spiritual things. And so he's got this gathering of people around him, who knows how many, and he's talking to them. And then off to the side, you've got the scribes and the Pharisees. Now remember, the scribes and the Pharisees were the religious leaders of Judaism. Right? These, weren't, these weren't just anybody and everybody. The Pharisees were the most respected of, of the, the, the different divisions within Judaism in the first century. They were the most respected ones. Now, they were wrong in a lot of ways, and Jesus rebuked them sharply on a number of occasions, but they, they were looked up to by the masses as the top of the people in Judaism. They were the religious leaders. The scribes, they were the ones that copied the law. Right? So they were, they were constantly in contact with the Word of God because they were copying it for others. That's what they did. They copied the law. So these were people looked up to. So Jesus is teaching. All of these tax collectors and other social outcasts and sinners were coming to listen to what Jesus had to say. And then you've got the religious leadership off to the side. And they're looking and watching. And they're bickering amongst themselves about what He's doing. And you can almost, when you look at what they were saying to each other, you can almost even picture their, their scowling faces 
as, as, as they look at what he's doing, and you can almost see their upper lip curling as, as they say, this man receives sinners. This, he eats with sinners. Look at what he's doing. Can you imagine? What in the world is he thinking? That's what's happening as Jesus begins to speak. But when he begins to, to speak to those scribes and Pharisees, as well as when he's teaching these others, he's acting in perfect harmony with his purpose. Luke 19.10, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's what he was, when he was interacting with these tax collectors and sinners, that was exactly what he was doing, seeking and saving the lost. He was a friend of sinners. Luke chapter 7, verse 34. Now they, they threw that accusation at him in a disparaging way. But in actuality, it was true. He was a friend of sinners, not in the sense that he engaged in their sin with them. He certainly did not. But he welcomed them into his presence. He welcomed them into his company. Why? Well, because he's trying to save them. He's trying to help them. And so he was acting in perfect harmony with his mission. He had come to call not the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke 5.32 And so he's about to tell these three parables in Luke 15. In response to the grumbling and complaining of the scribes and Pharisees. All right, so we're good on the background, the setup. All right, let's look at this parable of the lost sheep, beginning in verse 3. So he told them this parable, saying, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open pasture, and go after the one which is lost until he finds it. When he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I've found my sheep which was lost. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous persons who need no repentance. Parable, right? Earthly story, heavenly meaning, right? Isn't how we usually define parables? Fine, that's a good definition. This one involves a man who has a hundred sheep. And Jesus says, now if, if one of them becomes lost, surely, surely the owner is going to leave the 99 in safe pasture and go searching for the one that's strayed. When he finds it, he's going to, He's going to put it on his shoulders. He's going to carry it home. He's going to be happy. He's going to call upon others to share in his happiness. But when Jesus tells this story, <clears throat> he, he's using the parable to try to suck the audience in, to get them to affirm a principle that he's then going to turn on them in his application. In other words, he wants, them to, he wants them to admit that a certain principle is true. 
that they will assent to that and say, yes, that's true. And then he's going to take that principle that they've just agreed to and say, all right, now let's apply this to this other situation. And he does that by the language that he uses. He begins the parable, what man among you would not do X, Y, and Z? Anyone? Would anyone not do what I've just described? Would anybody not leave those 99 safe sheep and go search for the one that was lost? Would anybody not do that? Well, the obvious answer is, oh, you're right. Yeah, we would do that. Every one of us that has sheep would do that, given the circumstance that you described. And so he gets their implicit agreement with the example, and then he hits them with the explanation. And that's verse 7. <clears throat> In the same way, he says, right? So just like you would go search for one sheep that was lost, in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who don't need to. All right, so what do you mean by that? What was he trying to get these scribes and Pharisees to recognize? All right, let's, let's work through this. <clears throat> First of all, let's establish the fact that all people belong to God in a broad sense. And in, in, in the sense that, that, that we're, we are part of His creative work. Right? Didn't Paul even say to, um, uh, to the philosophers in Athens, right? Idolatrous philosophers, Acts 17, we are His offspring. Right? So he, he quoted that old poet and said, look, even one of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. He is our father in the sense that we are the product of his creation. And everybody fits into that category, Acts 17, 28. But a smaller subset of that number belong to God in a very special way, by having been chosen by him for salvation. We are all the sons of God, the children of God, by faith in Jesus Christ, Galatians 3, verse 26. Paul would write about how we have, if, we are, if you are a Christian, you have been adopted into his family, Ephesians 1, 3 through 6. All right, and so Christians belong to God in a special way that is not true of everybody else in the world. All right, so we belong to God. But sometimes souls that are in God's care and in God's flock, if you will, wander away from the shepherd and become separated because of sin. Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, your sins separate you from God. Isaiah 53, verse 6, to carry out the analogy, all we like sheep have gone astray. We run everyone to his own way. All right, That happens, right? And that's been true of all humanity from beginning to end, with the exception, of course, of Jesus alone, Hebrews 4.15. All right. Scribes and Pharisees were the leaders of God's people at that time, the Jewish people. They were the recognized ones who um, that the people looked up to for spiritual leadership. And here, in that moment, God, through Jesus was showing His love for lost humanity by seeking them. 
Jesus had welcomed lost people into His presence to try to help them, to try to teach them, to try to bring them out of that lost condition. Who should have been doing that? Scribes and Pharisees. Weren't they the religious leaders? Weren't they the ones looked up to by the... These, these are our leaders in our religion. That's the way the people looked at the scribes and Pharisees. So who should have been welcoming them into their number and trying to teach and help? The scribes and Pharisees should have. Well, what were they doing? Stand off. They didn't want to have anything to do with them. And when Jesus did have something to do with them, all they could muster the energy to do is complain about what He was doing. The tax collectors and sinners in Luke 15 are the lost sheep of Luke 15. These represented that one in the parable that had wandered off, that needed to be searched for and found. But the scribes and Pharisees weren't doing that. Jesus was. The scribes and Pharisees had no interest in dealing with such people. But God did. And they should have. So they were not being the kinds of shepherds that they should have been to those people. And Jesus was shining a light on that and trying to help them to see that they needed to be doing exactly what He was doing. But they weren't. So it was a rebuke to them, to the scribes and Pharisees. Now that's what's happening in the parable. And in the process of Jesus describing that, He's also giving all, he's, he's telling us characteristics about God, which we'll talk about in just a moment. He'll do that with the parable of the lost coin as well. But he really highlights the pitiful attitude of the scribes and Pharisees in the parable of the lost boys when he highlights the older brother and his terrible disposition toward the one who was lost but was now found. But sheep and shepherd are our purpose tonight, right? So let's stay with this. I want to offer you three lessons. What time are we done here? 8.30, Am I good with that? Um... What, how much time do we have? Okay, well, y'all listen fast, all right? <clears throat> Three lessons in ten minutes. And if we do this, then you can redo all your old outlines on the duration of miracles. All right, <clears throat> lesson one. Some people wander away from God, not through open rebellion, but through mere neglect and lack of watchfulness. Sheep wander off. Not because sheep are necessarily an openly rebellious type of animal. They just get to meandering around and, you know, eating grass or whatever they're doing, and they just kind of wander off. People do that too sometimes. Sometimes people end up in a lost condition. Christians end up in a lost condition not, not so much because they're openly rebellious, but because they just wander. The writer of Hebrews warned against that. Hebrews 2, verses 1 to 4, when he said, Remember, we ought to pay the greater amount of attention to the things which we've heard, lest we drift from them. Drift. 
And the way that statement is laid out in Hebrews 2 carries the idea of, again, an ongoing type of action. It's a process, in other words. We, we drift away. That word was sometimes used to describe uh, a ring that, may, that might slip off of a finger or a piece of food that might, uh, that might go down the wrong way uh, or um, uh, in a more... I, I, I see that word in a more um, modern context of... You ever, drive, you ever been driving, especially at night? Maybe you're a little bit tired and, and you kind of start drifting a little. right? That's this word. Sometimes people end up lost because they, they just wander. Not, not because they're evil people. Just like sheep wander off. Now that doesn't, that doesn't mean they're not any less lost. But sometimes how we approach people is, is, is affected by how we view them. And if we view somebody as just being evil, we're going to approach them differently than if we view them as having just wandered off through, through neglect and a lack of attention. Let's pray for wisdom that we be able to see and understand the difference. The Spirit is willing many times, but the flesh is weak, right? Matthew 26, 41. Lesson two, God is concerned for each individual lost person. One of the things that this parable teaches us is the value of the individual. You know, he didn't say 30 of the 100 wandered off, and you don't want to lose 30, right? So if you you lose 30, you better go out and find them. You can't afford that kind of a loss. Well, here the shepherd could not afford the loss of one. There is value in a single soul. We find that sometimes, um, I think, kind of subtly in Scripture. Paul will refer in 1 Corinthians 8 verse 11 to the brother for whom Christ died. Now, we often focus a lot of times on those passages that talk about Jesus dying for the world. And those are there, right? John 3.16, God so loved the world. Uh, Hebrews 2.9, He tasted of death for every man, right? And we, we look at those passages that talk about how, how, how Jesus died for everybody, and that's true. But sometimes we can focus so much on the group for which Jesus died that we forget that He died for individual people, that He died for you personally. You know, if... if if you were the only person in the history of the world that needed Jesus to take on human flesh and live a perfect life and, and go through everything that He went through, if you were the only person in the history of the world that needed Him to do that, He would have. Because He did. The Bible presents Him that way. He died for individual people, not just the group, though that's true. I'll put it this way, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ. Remember that? Nevertheless, I live, but it's not I, it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in this flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved, who? Who loved me and gave Himself for me. That's individual. 
That's personal. Don't ever allow the, the breadth of the love of Christ. And I don't, don't, hope you don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't ever allow that great truth, as great as it is, to allow you to lose yourself in the mass of people. And don't allow that to, 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 to make you forget that He died for you individually. That, that you mean that much to Him. One sheep wandered off. That was enough for God to go looking. He's concerned about the individual. All right, last lesson. Are there bells? Am I, do I need to be listening for bells or no? I may not hear it. All right. Do what? Bells. Okay, good. Good. It's like invisible flags, right? Okay. <clears throat> All right. Well, I'll keep watching for the masses of people. All right, last lesson. Good shepherds will seek lost sheep. Good shepherds will seek lost sheep. Um, so this, this last lesson you know, has more of a direct application to shepherds, right? And, and, and in, in the context of local church work, that, those are our elders, right? Um, good shepherds will seek lost sheep. Now, there's, we, we all have some responsibility in that regard, right? Galatians 6 verse 1, If a brother is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. All right, So that goes even beyond elder responsibilities. Right? If you are among those that have not gone astray, right? you who are spiritual, then, then we all bear some responsibility to try to restore that one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. But in a very special way, leaders need to lead in that, um, in that regard. Elders need to be the ones out front in doing that, which might require for, for leaders to reassess perhaps their emphasis. And and this is this is a challenge that um, that I've encountered in, in in numerous places. That it's it's so easy for the for even the best of men, the the, the best of of God's shepherds, to to be distracted by things of. Um, Shall we call it things of lesser importance? That their that their focus is no longer on the sheep. Maybe their focus is on things of a more, you know, material nature. You know, we're you know we're, we're focusing on on buildings and you know and and property and you know whatever else it might be. That that our focus gets off of the sheep. Shepherds need to regularly make sure that they're they're looking for the sheep, that they're looking out for the sheep that are still here, right, and feeding them and making sure that they have their spiritual needs taken care of, but also to be able to recognize when one's lost. 
when somebody's not a part of the group anymore. And then make it a point to go seek those lost sheep. And I will say that one of the things that I, that I really appreciated about our elders here when I was here was that they, they, they tried to do that actively. They would probably be the first ones to tell you that, 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 they, you know, that they do that imperfectly. Um, but whenever we would get together uh, for a meeting, that was, the, that, was, that was item number one. And I'm assuming it probably still is. Yeah, Item number one on the list when we would get together for a regular monthly meeting was who's been missing, who hasn't been here, who's, you know, who's, who's struggling. And, and, and we would talk about that. We would try to, 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 to figure out right, how, are we gonna, how are we gonna address that? And that's a good positive thing because that's what shepherds need to do. And so we can certainly pray for and support them in that, uh, in that endeavor. And, um, uh, and, and do our part as well to restore those that need to be restored. All right, well, it's, it's not the longest parable, but I think there are some great lessons there for us to watch our attitudes so that we don't become like the scribes and Pharisees and always want to keep our distance from those who most need what Jesus, the Good Shepherd, has to offer. And I recognize the challenge, right? Evil communications corrupt good morals, right? First Corinthians 15, 33, that's a biblical principle. And so we don't want to become like the world. But in our efforts to not become like the world, let's make sure that we don't so isolate ourselves from it that we don't have any positive impact on it. Jesus was having a positive impact by interacting with those who needed Him. Let us guard our attitudes as well and help those lost sheep to find the good shepherd that's been so good to us.